A disease has infected our country. It has brought smog to Yosemite, dumped garbage in the Hudson, sprayed DDT in our food, and left our cities in decay. Its carrier is man. The weak are already dying. Trees by the Pacific, fish in our streams and lakes, birds and crops and sheep, and people. On April 22nd, we start to reclaim the environment we have wrecked. April 22nd is the Environment Teach-In, a day of environmental action. Hundreds of communities, campuses across the country are already committed. It's a phenomenon that grows as you read this. Earth Day is a commitment to make life better, not just bigger and faster. That was Andrew Garling reading an ad from the New York Times from 1970, promoting the very first Earth Day. Stay with us. This is the Peace Frequency. Coming to you from the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., welcome to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge. Now, this past Saturday, April 22nd, the world celebrated Earth Day. And on today's episode, we explore the story of how the first Earth Day in 1970 came to be, marking the birth of the modern environmental movement. Whose idea was Earth Day? What was the vision? What kind of organizing power went into making this happen? And how has Earth Day and environmentalism more broadly been tied to peace building and nonviolence? Joining me in studio for today's show is Dr. Andrew Garland. Andrew is a recently retired primary care physician living in Northern Virginia, and back in the late 1960s, he was one of the original organizers of the very first Earth Day. Andrew, welcome to the show. Darren, great. Thank you. Also joining me on the show today is my co-host and USIP colleague, Tina Hegedorn, who also happens to be Andrew's neighbor. So, Tina, thanks for joining and co-hosting the show with us today. Thank Tina, you. good seeing you. Thank you. Across the fence. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say that we did an Earth Day show last year, and it was a year ago that Tina mentioned to me. She said, you know, my neighbor was one of the original organizers of the first Earth Day. You should interview him. Yeah. So here we are a here year we later, are. and right. we made it happen. We made it Very happen. Good. Um, now, Andrew, we start all of our shows with a behind-the-bio question, and this is a question that, in your response, hopefully reveals something about you that folks wouldn't learn coming across a bio that they find of you online, and hopefully also reveals something about your character, your motivations, your inspirations, etc. And by way of background for this question, um, it's a it's a long question. But I thought it was appropriate for this podcast. And I got this question or this exercise from an amazing peace educator, Dr. Maya Sotoroing. Uh, she is a peace educator in Hawaii. She uh, runs an organization called Seeds of Peace. That's C-E-E-D-S, Seeds of Peace. And she also happens to be the former um, sister of the former president, Barack Obama. She um, worked here at USIP as a fellow for one summer. And we got to learn a lot about her peace education work. 
And during a dialogue session, she introduced this question and this activity. And so I wanted to bring you into this activity. Uh, so it's a four-part question. Uh, here it goes. The, the first part of the question focuses on land. Um, and it asks, what is your mother's land? What is your father's land? And what is your land? And you can interpret land in any way that you like. Some people think of land, they think of a country, they think of a continent. Um, other people think of a neighborhood or a street or a home or a, a yard or a park. People can interpret that in many different ways. So I pose that question to you. What is your land? What is your mother's land? What is your father's land? Very good. Well, I'd approach that by speaking as an American. I think many Americans don't have a distinct sense of their land. Uh, some do. I was just this weekend out in New Mexico in the Pueblos, and those folks definitely have a sense of their land as land. Um, when you ask about my father's land and my mother's land, I know my father came from really the east part of Germany, maybe Polish border. My mother came from Ireland in history. But I haven't gone back to visit those places as my mother and father's land. So your question really makes me think about the land I grew up in, Indiana, the midland of this country. And my sense of land then was uh, a farm that we had growing up. And now would I today, at the age of 72, say that that's my land? No. But when I was on that land, it had a lot of potential for me. It kind of spoke to me. Uh, so I learned to garden there. I learned to take care of cattle there. Then uh, later in life, I didn't have any land. I was moving around. Uh, and then I can even go up to today, being Tina's neighbor, and my, la my land right now is I'm very focused on the gardens that I have to make sure that they're kept and the husbandry of that land is my responsibility. So I've kind of wished and washed around your question, uh, but I have a, a great respect for the concept of land, particularly when people put their foot down and say, this is my land. Mm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, part two. Okay. What is your water? Uh, the water to me is... Uh, always been something that has been humbling to me. So my water are uh, experiences that are humbling. Um, I worked on a ship uh, across the Pacific Ocean as a young man, and the size of that ocean and the power of it and the tramp steamer I was on lost power, and suddenly we were like a twig being cast around in a, in a storm. Uh, I was at one time climbing on a glacier with some friends uh, in uh, Switzerland, and I slipped, and I fell onto an ice bank, frozen glacier, I don't know how, you know, millions of years old, I don't know, but suddenly I felt the power of that ice just sucking the heat out of me. It was very, it was frightening, but it was so humbling that here this force of nature I was in, it's insignificant. So I think I look at that, uh, that water to me has always been the humbling experiences. Mm. 
part three. What is your wind? The the wind, it, to me, is more. If water is humbling, the wind is challenges. Something where you got a stiff gale right in the face. And I, my my home of origin in Indiana, my father, who had a German background. Uh, had a little plaque down in the playroom, and the plaque said, anger is the wind that blows out the lamp of the mind. Mm -hmm. So we'd get, you know, my brother beating each other up and now screaming, and and often uh, that we were reminded to look that we had lost it. The wind of anger had challenged us to lose patience and lose I guess, sobriety in the moment of have, have a longer look. So to me, the the wind has always been, I don't want to call it adversity, but it's it's always a little bit of a gust and pushing into that, mm. and I like it. Mm. That reminds me of uh, actually the last podcast that we, we, we posted um, was a recording that I did at the Gandhi King Conference mm. um, in Memphis, Tennessee just a few weeks ago. And one of the things we talked about on the podcast was love as the basis for nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes um, our anger that we have comes actually from love, love that we have for people, our people that are being oppressed or hurt exactly. or disenfranchised. And we're so angry about that because we love them so much and we have to act on it. And so this idea of, of wind causing anger also made me think of how you do you harness the wind to actually move great things sure. at swift speeds like a sail on a, on a ship you know not controlled or not understood it can topple you over and exactly. destroy you but but harnessed in a right way it can be the most amazing force yeah. um, the earth has to offer yeah that's, that's great um, I'm there alright alright <laughs> uh, and then part four what is your mountain I look back at some point when I was climbing a small mountain somewhere, and I realized that as I got my path to get up and just about the summit, this wasn't like pitons and ropes, I realized there were three or four other paths coming up from other directions. And the challenge of that mountain, to me, I realized, so simple, almost cute, that there are many ways up that mountain. Uh, and I think over time, the, my mountain has really become where I can get a vision, a, a view, and turn that view into some sort of vision for myself, my friends, my family, the planet. So you, it, you don't necessarily get the big vista vision if you're down in the dumps and you're going, woe is me, and you're victimizing yourself and so forth. But if you take a path, and my mountain is, gosh, maybe (laughs) my backyard standing up on a chair or hanging a plant, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a view. So my mountain is a place to get a view and a purpose of going forward. That's great. Thank you, Andrew. And Tina, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> you did get a sneak peek of these questions. So as co-host, I'd love for you to pick one of these, um, your land, your water, your wind, or your mountain. Um, did you get a chance to think about some of these? Or as Andrew was sharing his responses, did any wind, water, mountains, or land come to, come to your mind? Um, well, I – the yes, 
yes, the uh, the wind, especially water, the power of water, definitely, because it is daunting and, and, and scary, and it can change in a second. But the wind, also for me, the wind is more uplifting. I think of when I think of wind, I think of me riding my bike and the wind just taking me mm-hmm. and giving me freedom. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. Yeah. But the mountain, also, uh, the many there are many paths, right? So you, when you get stuck, you you get to the top, you see many other options too. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And I have to acknowledge that we're all cyclists here. So uh, solidarity to the cyclists. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah. um, all right. Well, let's, let's get into your story. Okay. So I guess it's my turn, but Andrew, I, I want to go back to you as a farmer. I knew your garden before I knew that you grew up on a farm. And the first time I saw your garden, I thought of the gardens at um, uh, Mount Vernon or Williamsburg, just very tidy and organized. And I was in awe Mm. of how you organized and planted this and you rotate your crops and you very thoughtful about that. And so I always think of you as a farmer. Well, uh, I think, you know, (laughs) neatness in farming and our gardens, uh, it's a it's a practice, isn't it? and I, I would say that my my life, uh, good, and uh, I think the lasting parts. I've often had mentors, and um, so growing up on a farm, I I knew the people that farmed, and they didn't just jump on the tractor and go out and you know plow around or something. They were rotating crops. Why are you rotating crops? And so that kind of idea and, um, and then I had my first garden and you know the rabbits ate it all uh, they didn't share uh, and the birds in our neighborhood don't share either no. uh, so you know how do you are you going to get out a gun and shoot them no you well, take a few tomato plants and put them in a screen you know right. and the tomatoes that aren't good toss them out in the lawn the birds so uh, it's a practice and it's a uh, it's a nice time to think You are listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge, and joining me in the studio today is my co-host and USIP colleague, Tina Hegedorn, and our guest is Dr. Andrew Garling, who was one of the original organizers of the first Earth Day in 1970. When we come back, we learn about how the civil rights movement influenced and tapped into the activist spirit of a young Indiana farm kid. So, well, I guess back to the Earth Day and the historical context. Okay. Um, before we get into the specifics of your experience and how you established and organized the first Earth Day, um, can you set the stage for us? Uh, what was the context of uh, what was going on in your life? What made you lead up to this event? Um, can you take us back to 1965? Yeah. Um I think that's, uh, I'll take you back a few years, just slightly earlier, but 
Uh, first of all, growing up in Indiana, I had no political awareness. Uh, I was a high school swimmer. I had a girlfriend. We went to the prom. We snuck some beer down and uh, you know, the whole deal. And then civil rights hit 1960s. And this, again, was what what is this? Now, as a little boy in the park, this is in northern Indiana, I would go down with my parents to the park, and there were bathrooms that said colored and white. And I, I had no idea of what that really meant. But it didn't concern me then, because my father, as a physician, treated all the people in the community. And I would go on house calls to some of the poorest neighborhoods, and they were just folks that needed help. But it, it didn't politicize me at all. And then I arrived at, uh, in college at uh, 19, I graduated in 1963, and I went to Yale. I was very fortunate to uh, get into this school. Took a train out myself. Um, and November 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And this was pretty heavy. And August in 1963 was the first march on Washington. And that was for liberty and jobs. And it was mostly a black 200,000 folks showed up here. And that was King's speech, I Have a Dream. So he gives this speech in August. And we all, it was Camelot. We were really on a roll. And bam, Kennedy's down. And not too long after that, 1968, I guess it was, King is down. So that time was very politicizing. And I think in 1967, uh, Gaylord Nelson, Senator Nelson, who actually was very instrumental in the Earth Day later, uh, created a teach-in on the war. That was the first teach-in. And they had a march on the Pentagon, again, another large march. Uh, it was one of the first times that tear gas was used. Um, and that sort of became a coin of the realm of protesting in those days. It wasn't being arrested. And moving right on into the moratorium, uh, Sam Brown led the moratorium, and the first one was in uh, whew, 1960. Nine, and they wanted to have the moratorium go then every month. And that was so people just would not go to work. It was a job moratorium. And then in November of 69, they had the March on Washington against Vietnam. And I, or, I was one of the few organizers, organizers up in Boston. I was in medical school. And we organized the three medical schools in Boston, Harvard, Tufts, BU, Boston University, and we created a Medical Peace Action Committee. And the idea of action to me really harkened back to the American democratic, democratic, for, demo, democratic movement for action. One of the oldest was founded by Eleanor Roosevelt in 1947. But again, it was about getting out, and so we called it Medical Peace Action, and we brought, I don't know, 11 buses down here. The night before, people were tear-gassed because they had a march on the Pentagon. And 
Nixon came out and said, I understand what you all are concerned about. I knew you would be concerned, he says, but I'm not going to do anything about this. So this, he galvanized us. And uh, now we're in 1969, uh, November, and I come back and uh, then this opportunity to do Earth Day. I mean, we were right back on it again. So 1963, you graduated from high school. Yes. You were 18 years old? Yes. And then in 1963, you go off to Yale, same year? Yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned that growing up in northern Indiana, you know, you had seen, um, you know, colored bathrooms, whites-only bathrooms. Yeah. Um, and then the I Have a Dream speech um, brought to light the civil rights movement for yes. you. For you to be 18 years old, graduating at that time, and then going to college, the question I have for you is, was there a shift or a significant change in how you thought about civil rights moving from northern Indiana and a, on a farm to New Haven, Connecticut, um, where Yale is located? Um, had you gone to school and I mean, had you had experience in like larger cities up to that point? Did no. you notice? Mm. What was that change like for you when you're going from a farm to a relatively large city at, at New Haven. Well, uh, our farm was about 10 minutes outside of our town of 60,000. Wow. And it was a farming community. It became a um, became a, one of the hubs of General Motors moved in there. Delco Remy moved in there. They made all the Jeep transmissions for uh, – actually for World War II. That was the first big factory that came in into this little town. So – I think the civil rights thing was starting to bubble, and my I came home from Yale uh, for my first summer, uh, and I got a job in the General Motors uh, tie bar plant. Swing shift, lunch pail, in, punch the clock, uh, and I wasn't slumming it. I mean, I had to pay for a lot of my own education, and it was great. I mean, it was, and one day I was taking my sandwich break and the man sweeping the floor went by me with his little tub sweeping the floor and he said Mr. Andy and I looked up and here was Ted our family gardener who I had never asked him what he really did he came and did tulips for us on the weekend and I thought Ted was just part of the landscape and I looked up and realized that he had been pushing a broom I talked to him he'd been pushing a broom there for 23 years black shop floor black mm -hmm. and I was a white kid out of college and probably someone pulled a string and got me a job for summer mm -hmm. and that I started to go whoa whoa whoa, whoa. There's, there's some two, there's, there's another side or maybe other sides to this coin. And I probably thought about the colored bathroom then. They were mm -hmm. gone by then. Mm -hmm. uh, Ted wouldn't have been able to go in the bathroom with me at the park when I was little. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so when you go off to Yale and you start getting involved in civil rights or aware of civil rights, can you pinpoint a specific moment? Was It was maybe a campaign on campus or an article that you read or a book that you picked up that – and maybe it was the I have a dream speech. Um, but is there a one moment that you can pinpoint and say, 
that was really where the the light switch was was turned on for me and you made a conscious decision i need to take some action on this i need to get involved in this movement whereas before like you said you weren't necessarily that aware or or concerned but a switch went off yeah lots of switches were going off for a lot of us uh contradictions uh yale i mean many of the kids were from pretty upscale places and had money and so forth but it was it was a good mix um i think the biggest switch going on for me was i was interviewing for medical school i mean i'd been involved i'd been out on campus we had uh, Black Panther stuff, and you know, um, the ADA was certainly involved. And I, I'll just parenthetically tell you that in 1965, I dropped out of school. I dropped out of Yale, and I left for 363 days because you could still get back in if you didn't take a full year away. Okay. And when I started at Yale, the president of Yale, Kingerman Brewster, then spoke to our freshman class and said, I don't know, four years, you have to do this in four years. Go do something. This is before Vietnam, before the draft was really picking up. And uh, again, talking about mentors, I started to talk to people that had taken, worked on the Southern Pacific Railroad, that had taken a year off. So this started. So I left Yale and I went around the world. Spend about a thousand dollars for the entire time, hitchhiking, working on a ship, and all that. And you could still do that then. Was that when the, you had the experience in the ship where the engine? Yes. Fit? Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, and big water experience. <laughs> and I came back, and first of all, I remember walking in my dormitory, and uh, some friend of mine said, "Andrew, you're back. You're back. Uh, how's your trip?" And I realized this is not going to go anywhere trying to tell someone about my trip. I had been in India. I'd slept in Salvation Armies. I'd been on trucks in the, the desert and, and with people sharing tea and better went home. And I went, oh, it was great. <laughs> and so I, I really didn't talk much about that, but that was a real different, because I saw, I saw people said, different races and you know people are having trouble and some people lived on high up on the hill uh and it that really opened my eyes to that and uh well so grew up on a farm northern indiana pretty much never left the state or didn't 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 venture too far went to chicago then you go to yale so in the span of two years, 1963 to 1965, you go from being pretty much in the same location to then deciding to go around the world. I mean, that's like a huge jump and not in the lap of luxury or anything like like you said, railroad, ships, trucks. Why? I mean, were a lot of people doing that back back then or – I don't think a lot of people were, but, you know, people were going off to Europe for the summer and so forth. There was a real sense then, Darren, of possibility. Uh, The economics of the time were not killer. Mm. Uh, I don't know the figures, but, you know, I think things were fairly stable. People weren't – whatever. Now, I I don't know. I I feel very – I'll use the word, uh, I don't know, blessed. Mm-hmm. Somehow this <laughs> I decided just to 
go off and do this, and it ended up radically changing my view. Um, you know, my kids today still sit around in their 30s, 20s, and 30s, and, Dad, come on, one more story about mm. that trip, you know. <laughs> now I make up a few. <laughs> of course, you got to. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I don't. I've really gone off. Of, you, you were asking me about the uh, the one of the light switch going mm. on. So I'm interviewing to go to medical school, and I'm interviewing to go to Stanford. And didn't do bad. I was not a straight A student, but I now. I mean, going around the world certainly had people that interviewed me go, you did what? Right. So it turned out that was an asset and so forth. And I was sitting across the table from some suit, uh, a guy really dressed nicely from Stanford. He was out to New Haven to interview. And uh, there was a march going on. And it was a Saturday interview, as I remember, and I couldn't participate in March. And it, I think it was a Black Panther march. And so it was going on right outside of the admissions hall where these interviews were taking place and noise and everything. And he looked at me and says, what do you think of that? And I said, you mean the noise? He says, no, I understand. I understand that. I, I know about noise. But do you know what protest is? Do you think that's right, that they're disturbing our conversation and walking through the campus at Yale, shouting slogans? That the switch went on, mm-hmm. and I said, you're damn straight, that's right. And he said, well, I think this interview is over. And I said, it was over before you had to say that. Wow. And that's when I went, there are going to be those people that are going to stand right in your way and tell you that they're going to block you. Hmm. And there's always a way around if you have good intentions and nonviolent. I wasn't violent. I don't think I hit a kid when I was like six years old, you know, or something. We weren't violent. Hmm. Um, hmm. So th- th- I can I can see that guy right now, and I just thought, okay, okay, game on. I know there are a lot of people out there like you, and they were they were, they were allowing the war to start building up. And so, you're listening to the Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Aaron Cambridge, and joining me on today's show is my co-host and USIP colleague, Tina Hegedorn, and our guest is Dr. Andrew Garling, one of the original organizers of the first Earth Day in 1970. When we come back, Andrew tells us about how he has confronted the effects of war firsthand and how he has shared those lessons with his own kids. Let's get in a little bit more into your anti-war activism. Um, so, Andrew, how did you first get involved in the movement opposing the war in Vietnam? Um, well, there's always that moment where you – i these are the aha moments. Um, when I went to 
Harvard Medical School in 1968, I had to do a work-study thing. Uh, I paid most of my own way. And I fortunately got assigned to work with uh, the Boston City Hospital. And the chairman of the board at the time was a black guy by the name of Dave Nelson. And Dave, Dave and I became really good friends. And I was a gopher. I went to get coffee. I did this. I did the mimic. They didn't have uh, fax machines. I don't know. Anyway, so how did I get involved? On that board was also the CEO of Massachusetts General Hospital, a guy by the name of John Knowles. John Knowles had just come back from doing a uh, study or a fly through of Vietnam during the war for Ted Kennedy's subcommittee on refugees, on uh, the people themselves. And so I got to know John Knowles, and he, he said, you know, you don't know it until you see it. And he was like on fire against the war, and I was getting there. And so the medical school, you have your first year, it's all science. At least it was then. And they allowed you six weeks off your first summer. And then once you got back into school after that six weeks, you were flat out until you graduated three, three years later. You were always in the clinic. No vacations. A little bit. Get home for a day or two. But it was, it was pretty – it was kind of a hazing thing, I think. But anyway, so I took, uh, I took Noel, John Knowles, Dr. Knowles' advice uh, – and I raised some money to go to Vietnam. And I went to Vietnam on my own. I attached myself to a group called the Physicians for Social Responsibility. And next thing I knew, I was on the plane, dropped me to Hawaii, through, flew over Cambodia, started to see what the hell Cambodia looked like, looked like pothole country we were already tearing that place up and then I got into Vietnam and my study that I was going to do that was to I was going to show that our government was not reporting the actual casualties of the Vietnamese people so I I created a little survey and I went to four major hospitals in the up in I-Corps all the way through. The war was going on all over. Scared the bejesus out of me. And what year is this? This would be 19... It would be the summer of 1969. So this is leading up. Now, remember, I get back, moratorium, march on Washington, get out there, do something. So now I'm getting very energized over this. And... Uh, basically, I showed that the numbers our State Department were releasing, even Kennedy, uh, Ted Kennedy's subcommittee, they were all discounted by about 40%, if not more. So I came back and tried to get some interest in this. I had hard data. And a wonderful guy, uh, Cy Hirsch, who was a reporter at the time for Seymour uh, Hirsch, uh, New York Times, he sat me down and says, Andrew, no one's interested. Hmm. He says, no one's going to be interested in this. They don't care. And about that time, Life magazine was was publishing the p- 
pictures of 350 young people who had died that week in Vietnam. That was very powerful. Life magazine was did an incredible service by doing that. But again, did they want to hear that, you know, a couple extra thousand people got, you know, torched Vietnamese? I mean, aren't they all kind of, what? No one had any sense of what was, why were we over there? So I came back and I, you know, I probably needed a rabies shot because I was rabid and uh, got incredibly involved in, in and, and ended up trying to help Dave Nelson run against Louise Day Hicks in the 7th District Congress, uh, did his campaign. Man, she was like a Democrat, flaming, you know, segregationist, stop the busing, you know. So it seems so, that you faced a lot of roadblocks in getting this information out. Did it fuel your fire? How did it... Oh, yeah, it's like the wind. I, to me, you know, when Cy Hur said that they're just not going to be interested, I went, okay. Challenge accepted. I got it. Yeah. And I wasn't upset with him. He was being, he was very, very clear on it. He just said it's, it, it, no editor is going to want to really run it. It might run it somewhere, but it's not of interest. And so I thought, that seems of human interest to me. Agent Orange and all that, but yeah, no, they were they, those were winds in my face. Uh, but where did it, you get the encouragement from to do that? To move forward? Oh, I think that uh, had to be sort of a, some kind of internal deal. Okay. Excuse me. Um, I don't know. I don't look back and go, "Oh, what a rock!" You know. Uh, the times are there. People were on the move to stop this thing. Right. You didn't feel like you were just singing out there alone in the field. So I think, um, yeah, encouragement was there. I mean, uh, definitely. But like, do you have brothers or sisters? I do. And then your mom and dad, are they still alive at this point? Yeah. Uh, how did they respond to your going to Vietnam and... Um, doing this study and, and coming back, were, were they supportive? Did they care? Were they super encouraging? How did your family members respond? Um, they they certainly didn't discourage me from going around the world, going to Vietnam. But I think, uh, you know, I felt they they were just folks in Indiana. I don't think. Be safe, Andrew. Can you drop a card, please, every week? It was that sort of thing. I think that they knew knew me well enough that if they were going, you cannot do that. Another wind in my face. I would have gone, I'm 18. I'm, or, you know, now I'm in medical school. I'm arguably the best medical school on the planet. So somehow I'm keeping my act together. It wasn't like, oh, right. so now, you know, you're failing school and what are you drinking all night? Which we did it now and then. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it. so I... I kept my ducks lined up like a lot of people, like many of the people that helped organize the first Earth Day. Okay. Uh, we all had a history of having our ducks in order. Okay. Okay. So you you organized buses of folks, yep. medical students to go down, participate in the march. Um, you talked about there being a lot of tear gas. And uh, I was not alive at the time, but I do know that a lot of people were uh, arrested, um, you know, beaten by law enforcement and, like you said, tear gassed. 
I'm asking this question because um, as a one parent to another and how you explain your experience with protest and civil disobedience, um, risking arrest. Were you ever arrested or no. faced arrest or risking arrest, doing something that is seen by many to be against the law or disobedient, but still doing it anyway. I'm asking how you explain that part of you or that experience in your life to your kids. You have three kids, right? Yes. I give you uh, like a, a the clip answer is no, I never had conversations like that. But I modeled a lot of behavior. And I think my children grew up hearing stories. I don't think I ever used the word civil disobedience with my kids. And I never did say anything about being arrested. But in, in the stories about what we had done, that you know, they were picking up that this wasn't just a picnic in a park. I know that they perked their ears at the point of the tear gas thing. But, you know, in some ways it was the red badge of courage then. You really wanted to go home and say, hey, I got gassed. Oh, hey, I got arrested. You know, where was what was the underlying motivation? So the underlying motivation is more about what, what are you clear on? And I, I, can, rec I can recall you have, to, you have to check. You have to do an internal checking. And I guess it was uh, we were in Atlanta. Uh, my two boys came home from uh, elementary school or middle school. And we had just won the first Iraq war. And they were so jubilant. Dad, we won! Coming up the driveway. We won, we won. And I was like, yeah, really? Won? Yeah, no, no, it's over, which is cool. And I said, you know, let's just play a little game here. And this is about asking my children to think of what their values are. You kids can't. Now, look, you listen to me. No, no. You can't. You, t you have to. I think you have to tell stories. Uh, and so I set them down, and I got out out of the pantry a huge bag of rice. And how old are they now? See, Brett is my middle guy. He would have been eight, seven, and Caleb was so he would have been about twelve. You're right in there. Okay. Um, and their younger brother was probably in a crib somewhere. Okay. So it was a seized kid. And uh, so we got out the bag of rice. And I said, uh, okay, so the war's over. So, but I said, people died, right? Oh, yeah. And I said, how many Americans died, you guys? Well, well, we heard not many. And I said, well, I can tell you. About 133. 135. So I stopped there and I said, you know, I've got this bag of rice. Count out 135 grains. And we went, yeah, come on. So they dutifully did that and they had a little pile. And I said, now find something in the kitchen that, that just fits in. And I don't know what it was. A quarter, copper, a big teaspoon. I don't know. They got it and they got it all in there it was. And I said, okay, now put this little mound right there. And I said, do you think tonight those families are, are they happy tonight? No. No, they, no. Wife, kids, dad or mom's not coming home. No, no. So a little bit now is getting a little heavy. 
And I said, okay, okay. So I said, now you have your scale. You have your teaspoon here or whatever it was. Go to the bag, and I'm going to tell you that about 135,000 Iraqis died in this conflict. And I want you to do 135 of your Asian cups. And they did this, and they had a small mountain of rice. And I said, do you think those families are happy tonight? Did we win? Got resolve. War was not something you jumped up and down. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? That makes a lot of sense. And so that's t- talking to my kids. Hmm. Uh, I don't think I, probably when they got older and they could understand, I told them about being in a Jeep in Vietnam and seeing our 50 caliber machine gun cut down villagers. Hmm. Have they brought up those experiences with you as they've grown up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they're very purposeful. Mm. I don't have to worry about them standing up for what they believe, and they believe the right things. Mm. And they've been around people that believe the right things. Mm -hmm. They've been around Tina. Mm. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, uh, but they've seen people that don't believe the right things. Mm. We have our, our, our president now. We have our people that are changing the way we're going to regulate industry and uh, they understand and uh, my youngest recently after uh, the election he said dad I'm going grassroots he's living in Denver he says I'm going to see who's running for school board he says I can't take on Washington Mm. Tina, you're also a parent. You have three kids. Uh, So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this question, too. I mean, when these difficult conversations arise because the world experiences some type of violent conflict or some type of uh, inhumanity or injustice, and you see your kids reacting or responding to it in a certain way, and you feel the need to, to help them process that, have there been moments where, you know, you, you've looked back on and said you were really that was an important, impactful moment for you and your kids. And there are a couple I can think of. Um, I have, I'll put it into perspective, I have a daughter first and then two boys. And so, you know, my daughter was the typical, or I don't know, is it typical, but she loved to wear pink and everything was soft and fluffy and playing with dolls. And then my son came along and he would make a gun out of anything and everything you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, he would bite it into the shape of a gun. And, you know, I'm going to shoot my sister. And, you know, I would, of course, my gosh, you can't do that. But I, I tried to tone it down. And, and, and um, but it was interesting to me. We um, were a foreign service family and we were living in Egypt. And my middle son was about 10 at the, at the time of this instance. And we were driving. We got lost and ended up in a different neighborhood other than our Tony diplomatic neighborhood. Enclave. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so we, we, all we did was take the wrong left turn, and two blocks over, we were in this neighborhood with masses of people, no shoes, just very, very poor, mud huts, everything. And, and here we are in this minivan 
with diplomatic plates, and I was sweating bullets because I wasn't sure what's – I hate that term. But I was really nervous and upset and trying to figure out how to get out of here. And my son in the back started to cry, and he said, I want to go home. I want to go home. And I'm trying to keep him calm, and I'm thinking, well, why, tell me why you want to go home. And I'm thinking, well, he's saying, I want to go to Toys R Us, or I want to go here. And I said, well, tell me, why do you want to go home? And he said, because it really makes me sad to see how people live here, and it's really hard to see this. People don't have shoes, Mom. And so I think my kids have grown up with that perspective and seeing how other people live. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about war and we when the arab spring started and when all the we were watching egypt erupt on television it really made my kids sad because they had lived there and they know how the egyptians live and how difficult life is for most people in egypt so um other than the peanut butter sandwiches and the guns my kids have never thought that war was a solution or a good thing just because of how they grew up and what they've seen. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Well, thanks to both of you for sharing uh, those, those powerful stories. You're listening to The Peace Frequency, a, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Aaron Cambridge, and joining me on today's show is my co-host and USIP colleague, Tina Hegedorn, and our guest is Dr. Andrew Garling, one of the original organizers of the first Earth Day. When we come back, Andrew tells us about how the original four organizers for Earth Day first came together and how AT&T played an unexpected role in making this day possible. going to get to the earth day now <laughs> yeah believe it or not first earth day 1970 so so much is going on in your life and um uh i love earth day i think it's one of my favorite days of celebration acknowledgement um and so as years go by I'm, i've been learning more and more about it and It's now been celebrated for 47 years and first here in the United States and then eventually started to be recognized and celebrated all over the the world. And so I read on the Earth Day Network website, which is earthday.org, that Earth Day is now the largest secular observance in the world, celebrated by more than a billion people every year and a day of action that changes human behavior and provokes policy changes. So I read that, largest secular observance in the world, celebrated by more than a billion people every year. When you hear that and you read that as one of the original organizers of Earth Day in 1970, how does that make you feel? You sure Halloween's not there? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's interesting, uh, the reaction that I have. Uh, it's often, it's someone that I'm walking with, uh, well, this last time, which was really quite nice, I was with my wife in Savannah this, uh, two weekends ago. And they the beautiful park in Savannah, and we were walking through, and a huge celebration, and they were having a pre-Earth Day celebration, and they were, had tents set up to answer questions on proper eating and proper all this. And uh, Susan turned to me, and she says, Isn't this just amazing? 
And what she was doing was saying, this is here and everywhere. And my reaction to that was, have at it, really, it's so great. I mean, uh, it's, I, I, yes, I'm really happy. And it's, it's so many flavors now. And I think the way we organized Earth Day, which is very, I mean, we, the civil rights and, say, the war in Vietnam, I mean, you had kind of a, a, a focus. Now, the civil rights, it could be the black guy on the corner in your town. The war, it was, you're going to get your butt drafted and you're going to go over there. And that was more of a, when we did the organizing, and I can tell you if you want me to at some point, uh, we really structured it so it was local. So it wasn't about, do you realize Earth Day, we're going to celebrate, we have seven continents and we have a great ozone layer. No. It's when we'd get a call in that, you know, some high school in Oklahoma was going to do something because they had a creek that was all full of crap. Go for it. Yes. That's, then it goes back to your land thing. Mm -hmm. Take some ownership. What is your land? Mm -hmm. And what is your problem in your land? And I think Earth Day had a lot of energy around that. I mean, God, the stuff that went on, uh, it was very different. So, I mean, that ties into the next question. You're talking a little bit about that. But what was the original vision? It was of what was the original vision and where did the idea from Earth Day come from? Well, um, the original vision... I mentioned that Gaylord Nelson had the teach-in on the war in 1967, and he uh, introduced the idea of a teach-in on the environment sometime in 1969, 68, I don't know. Um, and Dennis Hayes, who became our national coordinator, and Steve Cotton, who became our, we called him our flack, he was our media guy, and I were all graduate students in the first class at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And this class came together. They were drawing from all the, the graduate schools, and I got drafted in because I was kind of an activist, so I think maybe our dean wanted to get me out of town for a while. I don't know. But anyway, Steve Cotton, uh, had been at, uh, he was at the law school, and he had been as an undergraduate at Harvard and was uh, editor of the Harvard Crimson. So he, and he was also a stringer for Newsweek. And Dennis Hayes came out and was going to the law school at Harvard, and he had been class president, uh, I think, at Stanford, student body, and led the sit-ins at the Lawrence Livermore Labs. What were those? And they they were making atomic weapons, and they were, it, it was atomic gone crazy. And it was on a it was on Stanford campus. Or one of the buildings was anyway, so we were together and we started this graduate school and turned out the professors had only one semester of activity. The first semester for us to do. And then they hadn't written a curriculum yet for the second semester. And so when we got back from uh, I guess Christmas or whatever, they said, you know what? We want you all to go out and do a project in the community and write it up and come back in May and tell us about it. 
So, and think it up. You guys are all activists. You all, blah, 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 blah. and so uh, somehow Steve Cotton and Dennis Hayes and I got to talking, and Dennis had been contacted by someone who said, you know, Gay- Gaylord Nelson wants to do a teach-in on the environment. Maybe, maybe, and he says it should be student-run. Smart. And so Dennis, I think I'd give him credit for the idea, he said, let's go down and offer to run the teach-in on the environment. Now, why would we do that? Because right at that time, you were either for the war or you were against it. There was very little crossover by that time. Uh, it wasn't convincing this, that, or the other. Uh, well, there were some waves later. But anyway, so we had, let's, let's co-op this teach-in on the environment. None of us knew anything. We couldn't even spell it. We didn't know if there was an N and an M or how it went in by your own month. You know, I, I mean, I'm being kind of silly. But so we went down, and our idea was to take over this thing and make it an anti-war movement. Interesting. Okay. And so, uh, Dennis, uh, I would say that the engine for Earth Day in the in our we had, thank Gaylord Nelson, we did not do this in his offices, where some websites say that it was run out of his office. No way you're going to run this yeah. students out of a senator. And he was a great guy. You know. Anyway, so, but the engine of Earth Day among us, uh, first of all, just the three of us started, was Cotton and Hayes. Hayes was an, remains today a very eloquent speaker, sharp as a tack, good on figures, and you don't want to go up against him. He, he's good, he's intense, he's a wonderful guy, runs the CEO of the Bullet Foundation out of uh, Environmental Foundation out of Seattle. And Steve knew how to deal with the media. So we have this, and then what was my job? I basically was asked to start organizing the, the office. So I, maybe I became sort of the operations officer, if we had that. Uh, but our whole thing was, yeah, no, we'll do this teaching environment, sure, you know, good. Uh, and then, well, let's see, Ed Muskie had done the Clean Air Act. But, you know, so we had some things, but we got this idea that we would create a movement, and we didn't know how big it would be. And so uh, we, ra- we had money. The Stern Family Fund came in. These were all liberal funds. Uh, we, had to got to, we, we took no corporate money. Um, Was any offered? Yes, oh, definitely. I can still remember when the uh, Shell Oil folks came in, a bunch of guys in suits, in the briefcase, and they wanted to uh, endorse Earth Day. Really? And I've seen you before. Didn't you interview me for in, in, Stanford? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we'd like to run an ad in support, and we went, No. For the check. You know, and I think you could ask Dennis, but I think our total operating budget through the whole thing was just under $50,000. So it was all paid volunteers. Uh, three of us, we took a little salary to pay our uh, housing costs there. Uh, anyway, so we got this thing going, and um, so Steve started thinking about the media. Dennis is out speaking now, kind of talking about the teaching. We call it the teaching. Okay, and I'm going to stop you there. Yes. What is the teaching? And I ask this because... We actually do a lot of work here at USIP yeah. on nonviolence, and we talk about the different methods of nonviolent action. Yeah. Gene Sharp lists one of them. 
uh, one of his 198 methods as being the teach-in. And I think it's a word that gets talked about a lot, but what actually is a teach-in? Well, I think if I think Nelson was the first to use it on the teach-in on the war in the 1967. It's basically you have people, uh, you you have a community gathering. You try and do it at a local level. It's not but you have a local venue and you have people in some ways is it a debate but you have people with both sides to learn about what's going on and what our country is doing then you walk away and you've learned more and then you make your own judgment now we were going to try and really slant the judgment on Earth Day because our thing was we want a new group of people to be against the war. We've been living against the war for years, it felt like. So the way that we did that is, and then uh, Arturo Sandoval, uh, I uh, got a friend, uh, a guy from the ADA, uh, he was out in New Mexico, and I said, ADA is what? The American uh, for Democratic Action. The oldest action group still alive in this country, founded by Eleanor Roosevelt. Maybe I told you that. So, uh, anyway, I called him up and I said, Gil, what, uh, who do you know out there? And he says, oh, he, this, this guy with the Raza, man, this, he's a Chicano and uh, he's a firebrand. I said, good, you got his phone number. Now, we didn't have text. We didn't have, we didn't have anything. I mean, we, didn't, we did mimeograph at this time. This is 1970. So I call up and somehow get... Sandoval on the phone. I said, hey, you know, we understand. I understand that you're a good organizer and we're trying to organize nationally and we need someone that knows the Southwest. And he says, I don't know the Southwest. And then he stopped me. He says, I do know the Southwest. And he said, so this is the environment you're going to do? And a long pause. And he says, call me Andy. He says, Andy, our environment are rats and garbage. Do you want me to organize around that? I said, get on the first plane, you're, you're in. And he came out and he was a terrific organizer. Uh, but he did it at that. So it spoke to that land and those people there. You know, I mean, I became the Northwest or Northeast organizer. And, you know, I was doing New York and Boston and a lot of rats in both those cities. But most people, it's not the big problem. Mm-hmm. And so we, we just, uh, I don't know, um, I'll just give you one example of uh, prosecuting the war under the environment yes. name. Yes. Is because I had the Northeast. Um, we had a group starting in Boston. Great. You know, I mean, it, real good. And what was their local problem? The harbor, Boston Harbor. It was full of crap. The Charles River was just bringing stuff out of Medford and God knows, everywhere, and just dumping it. And it was really, a, it was a cesspool. I mean, it was before that time, you know, that river in Cincinnati caught on fire. Yeah. That really helped us. Yeah. The Cincinnati or Cleveland? Or both? Oh, it, was, it was Cleveland. Cleveland. It was, no, 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 no. Cleveland. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good. Fact check. Right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, their thing was to clean up the harbor. And so good. 
you know, we started organizing around that, and they weren't really an anti-war group. It was a new group. I don't know who they were. They were good people. And uh, so I talked to Steve, uh, and so we said, okay, so we'll supply you with some information to get you started. Now, this was our key. We would supply them with – so they want to clean up Boston Harbor. How much is it going to cost? Uh, $500 million. Corps of Engineers says $500 million at that time, 1970, clean up Boston Harbor. Good. Well, that's a lot of money. Oh, by the way, you know we're spending $100 million a day in Vietnam. So five days in Vietnam would clean up your harbor. Anyway... So have at it, and we just fed this kind of comparative information, oh, environment, and we don't want to use pesticides on our garden. Yeah, we're Agent Orange, we're dropping it in clouds on other people. And and I, I'd say the reason I'd point to Steve Cotton and Dennis Hayes is that Steve was a master at taking the article that was written maybe by the Globe, Boston Globe. And then we, then Bryce Hamilton would hear of a high school out in Topeka that was going to organize. Cotton would get on the, two, or on the phone, figure out who the editor of the Topeka Bugle was, call him up. You know you have a high school that's going to do this Earth Day thing. Yeah, well, I don't know much about it. Let me just send you, here's an article that was written in the New York Times, and here's an article that was written in the Boston Globe. And if you need some background, I'll help you. Pretty soon, Topeka Bugle was running that their high school was following this national thing. It was masterful. Hmm. It create, we By April, before Earth Day, uh, we sat around and went, Bryce, how many, how many high schools? Got to be over 10,000. Uh, counting heads, Arturo, Andrew, how, ma- how many colleges? Tick, tick, tick. It's got to be over 2,000 universities and colleges. There are only 7,000 in the country, you know. It was just, we went, well, but it, it was not, it was a blended protest because MERV, the multi entry vehicle, bomb that we were creating, that became a topic about destroying the environment. So a lot of this stuff got very blended nicely. But the environment thing definitely clawed in, and it it really became, I mean, I, I'd say we really helped the anti-war effort, but Earth Day really launched the environmental movement. Can I tell you something? Yes. When I was in elementary school, we had an Earth Day project because our school was uh, near a garbage dump. And so our neighborhood, you know. Beautiful. Yeah. I I remember this. We had to go. We did um, activities like we would go choose a part of the highway and pick up the garbage. And then we would raise money. Um, Our whole neighborhood raised money to cover the garbage dump. So I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's must good. have been. Eight, I was eight years old, so seventy-one. Wow. Wow. So anyway, we should have featured you in one of our press releases. 
<laughs> Hegedorn goes rogue. <laughs> so in terms okay. of like a, a, a time um, scale here, <clears throat> you were doing all this, setting up the office, researching and learning about the environment, drawing the connections to the war, uh you know, reaching out to high schools, other organizations, figuring out projects that they could do. Is all this being done in the span of just like six months? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, we didn't, it was really even less. Yeah. I mean. We, we hit Washington in January, last week in January. And then by April you had it set the thousands and thousands of yeah. schools. And well, you know, we had enablers that were really positive. I have to tip my hat to through a, a great friend at Yale, his father. Uh, again, there were uh, important people, uh, families, and his father uh, was president of AT&T at the time. That was the big phone company. It was before it got deregulated. We moved into our DuPont Circle offices. We had one phone, and it might be February 1st or something. And so I was the ops guy, and I called the phone company. I said, you know, we're going to need probably, you know, 10 phones, uh, yada, yada, yada. Great, good. Well, well, we can get out to you. It'll probably be five, six weeks before we're doing DuPont Circle. And so... I sat back and I thought, well, I guess I'm going to call in a chip. And I had uh, gone home for Thanksgiving because I couldn't go home to Indiana, take a train home from Yale with my college roommate who his father was president of AT&T. I'm very humble, a beautiful listener. I mean, this was if he was a titan, he he was a titan with a heart. Mm. Big. So I called the AT&T headquarters in New York, and uh, I got through to his office, and the secretary, of course, was very protective of his name is uh, Robert R.D. Lilly's time. And I said, well, I'm actually, I know Mr. Lilly, and I'm a good friend of his son, Robert, and uh, I just need to speak to him for a minute. Oh, okay, sure. So pretty soon, R.D. Lilly comes on the phone. He says, hey, "Andy, how you doing? You know what's what's up? Da, 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 you know, but what? You know, he's a busy guy." He says, "How can I help you?" And I said, "Look, this is going to be really out of left field, but we're we're doing this protest about protecting the environment." He said, "I thought you you know anti-war." And I said, "Well, kind of a little bit of the same, but it's really a, a broader scope." And we want to try and pull this off by April. And I've just talked to the Western Electric local bell folks here in D.C., and it, we're on their in installation list for five weeks. And I said, it's just really going to hamper us, and can you help? And there's a long pause, and he said, well, let me see what I can do. And he said, i got to go, and I said, fine. Well, I appreciate it and hope to see you soon. But the next morning... I thought we had an invasion of phone trucks. They were climbing over this building. We, By the end of the day, we had our bank of phones. We had one of the first T-lines T in the country where you could actually dial long distance anywhere. You just had... Oh, the T-lines, yeah, yeah. 
feeling. Yeah. And I don't even remember how the bill got paid. I, I'm sure we paid the bill. But it was just like, and he never said anything. Later, I thanked him. Uh, I actually spoke at one of their union meetings that he introduced me at uh, one of the uh, electrical or whatever union thing was, and I told about Earth Day. But uh, again, I point to that because if, if it was a perfect storm, there were a lot of forces that brought it together. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So without <laughs> AT&T, maybe first Earth Day may not have been pulled off by it, April. It, it, it had been tough. It had been tough. We, That's interesting. You know, now, if you're pushing some wind in my face, I would have said, okay, if we didn't get our phones to yeah, March, exactly. we're still yeah, going to yeah. we'll pull that darn thing off. <laughs> but it, it, no it facilitated it. Yeah. And our offices got broken into by uh, certainly the probably one of the agencies because nothing was stolen except our address books. What? Okay. We got to go on that a little bit. <laughs> well, we you, never knew, but you know. It so was, t- take us to that moment. So you have your office set up in DC. Now, now we have about a hundred volunteers showing up. This uh, is like March. March. Okay. And they're coming out of the woodworks. They're coming from Alaska. Mm. They're hitchhiking in there. And the thing I learned about later in organizing about volunteers is you can't fire them. <laughs> it's hard, man. So yeah. you get you get some kind of interesting folks. That, that passionate people. Passionate. <laughs> Later, as a physician, I would have said they needed some drugs. <laughs> but anyway, it was good. Good energy. But we had probably on any day between thirty and fifty, and then on the weekends we were jammed because we were licking envelopes and stamps, and it was all mail. Mm. There's no text. There's no. Yeah. No, there's no email. They couldn't even, even spell it then, you know. So, uh, yeah, and uh, we, the DuPont Circle office was just, uh, I don't know, it was just alive. Hmm. And, but you come home or you go, go get to the office one day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, and the... And you notice the address book is, is gone. What do you and Dennis all, and Arturo and others... We all got together and thought we can't do anything about this what are we going to do call the police <laughs> nothing was stolen but the address book is gone we we knew, we knew where it had happened from and i'm not we just yeah. i'll just say that we had there were people like halderman and other people that were very suspicious hmm. and we were we were going over to the moratorium office meeting with sam brown and uh Oaks, uh, anyway, firebrand uh, organizers against the war, and we were over there. Yeah. We were trying to coordinate that our Earth Day didn't queer their day of the 15th. They wanted to have this thing on every month on the 15th. So mm-hmm. we picked the 22nd, and I don't quite remember why. I, I took me to Adam Rohn and his book that came out uh, a couple years ago. He might know why how it got picked. I don't know. But there it was. But, uh, yeah, and so I think it would be March sometime where we were definitely – I think it was after we ran that New York Times ad, and that really – I mean, that that was 8000 bucks for us then. Out of a, I was going to ask. That's a full-page ad or half-page? Page, at that time, it was, was $8,000. I remember we sat around, and I think that's why Dennis is a good leader, and we, we talked over. He said, let's do it. Wow. 
And you, Steve wrote that. Right, right, right. You're listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge. Joining me on the on the show today is my co-host and USIP colleague, Tina Hegedorn, and our guest is Dr. Andrew Garling, one of the original organizers of the first Earth Day. When we come back, Andrew talks about the original message of Earth Day and how it and his life have evolved since then. podcast, but you mentioned the New York Times ad, and um, I came across it as I was researching you and learning more about Earth Day. I would love for you to read an excerpt from this ad, uh, and we can talk a little bit about how you and others who are part of this organizing team crafted this ad and this message. Um, so it starts, oh, yeah, here. starts here at the bottom, and then it continues here on the top of this page. So, if you could just read that to our our listeners, then we'll talk about it. It's for a part bit. of it. Or it's it's pretty it, much. It, it, it's like the first part of the ad. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of clever. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, uh, Steve Cotton was a master. Still mm-hmm. is. I mean, he's just great. A disease has infected our country. It has brought smog to Yosemite, dumped garbage in the Hudson sprayed DDT in our food, and left our cities in decay. Its carrier is man. The weak are already dying. Trees by the Pacific, fish in our streams and lakes, birds and crops and sheep, and people. On April 22nd, we start to reclaim the environment we have wrecked. April 22nd is the Environment Teach-In, a day of environmental action. Hundreds of communities, campuses, Across the country are already committed. It's a phenomenon that grows as you read this. Earth Day is a commitment to make life better, not just bigger and faster. To provide real rather than rhetorical solutions, it is a day to re-examine the ethic of individual progress of mankind's at mankind's expense. It is a day to challenge the corporate and the government leaders who promise change but who shortchange the necessary programs. It is a day for looking beyond tomorrow. April 22nd seeks a future worth living. April 22nd seeks a future. You know, I saw that, I read that, and you just said it was a little bit prophetic. Um, and you think about it in today's context, um, and you talk about Stephen Cotton being a, a, just a, a master at, at messaging, and we talk a lot in, in this day and age, particularly around nonviolent action, around messaging and, and, and trying to mobilize people around a cause. And so I read this, and I'd love to hear what was the process that went on behind crafting this message. How much time was spent crafting it? Who was involved? Um, and, uh, yeah, let's just start with that. Well, I, uh, I think that's actually a simple answer. I, I think Steve probably uh, wrote the first copy uh, and I would, I can feel Dennis Hayes in this. I can feel Dennis actually 
saying this to a large crowd. Uh, so I imagine Dennis maybe was on ground floor. We were going to spend this money. We had to do it. We couldn't like dilly-dally around. So the process. I'm not sure I read that ad until we were ready to, to pay for it. Uh, we didn't have time. I mean, I was on the phone. I was traveling. I was traveling all over to get, you know, and and the Earth Day was showing up, and Arturo was the same. He was he was gone and back in, and Barbara up to you know to the Midwest. So I I'm not sure that it was a committee. I I hear definitely my very good friend Steve in this, but I also hear the echo of Dennis being able to just nail it. Mm-hmm. Well, you just nailed it. Yeah, that was <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, that was really good. So you said you were in touch with Arturo or you went to visit him last weekend. Yes. Do you still get together with the group? How often do you see them and what what are your interactions? Well, that's a great question. I, there was a, a really last-minute attempt to get some of us together this Earth Day out at Arturo's place. Uh, he he has done an incredible work out there. He's been – he talk about commitment. Uh, but everyone was tied up with the march uh, for science, or as it turned out, I was the only <laughs> only guy that could jump on a plane and uh, and get out there, and it was it was terrific. So I see Arturo maybe once every two, three, four years. I see Steve more often, uh, and uh, I've seen Dennis at the 40th anniversary uh, here in D.C. Uh, it was a great anniversary because. Except for Dennis, who stayed very much involved, we created a thing called uh, Environmental Action right after Earth Day, set up a 501c3 and so forth to take on really moving it forward. And the room was filled with all these wonderful people who had been involved in the EA, they call it, since then. And some of them, they would they go, oh, yeah, no, I was at the first one too. But mostly the focus was on how it was moving forward, mm-hmm. which I loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah. So on that topic of, <laughs> of moving forward, yeah. you read this ad. There's this clear, powerful message that comes from the ad. And so do you feel that the message and spirit of Earth Day uh, remains the same as what's expressed in the ad? Or do you think it's evolved into something quite different and what do you see as remaining constant versus what do you see as, as, as having evolved from this message? And it sounds like you and Steve and Arturo and Dennis and others have had this conversation about how has the vision, purpose, message of Earth Day changed, if at all, since 1970? Great question because there's part of me that wants to say it hasn't changed. The message was about wake up, you're on this planet, it doesn't have infinite resources, and you must take care of your own space. So if there are a billion people this last Saturday running around doing something, I guarantee you it was still about their own place and space and their land and the earth. So. Sure, it's changed. I mean, it, the the the, uh, the tactical uh, the tactics need to change. Uh, I mean, I look at the trustees for Alaska right now. I mean, 
they're dealing with, first of all, a lot of uh, rollback of regulations, uh, and you know, but who's taking care of the polar bears? Oh, that, that poor little bear doesn't, excuse me? The one thing that I, and I'll, I'll wrap up here, is I went on into medicine and I really, I would say I stopped doing the big stuff and went to one-on-one. And I ran trauma service in Northern California for 15 years. And I wasn't about convincing anyone of anything except it's you and me and my team and we're going to get you through this. And I guess in my life, I've kind of gone on and done that. I, I now teach and tutor on an individual basis. I don't organize like so. Although this weekend, I'm going to attend the uh, People's Climate. Yeah. Are you going? I'll yeah. Good. Yeah. I'll see you. It's going to be a record your, hot day, too. Meet, meet your daughter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I think everyone has matured in their own way from the original day. And they're coming on all the time. Uh you know, someone commented to me on this March for Science on Earth Day this last Saturday. And he, he was walking around because it's raining here. And he had an umbrella that said, acid rain. <laughs> well, you know, there's not much acid rain in this country. Hmm. And younger people come out and go, acid, what's that? I remember. Well, acid. We, we knew <laughs> what acid rain was. Yeah, we all did. Yeah. I mean, it, it would change your umbrella that was blue into a spotty white kind of thing if you were in yeah. certain areas. But frankly, did the Earth Day Clean Air Act? So uh, I, I'll try and just say it. the issue is the same. Mm-hmm. You're standing on the ground. The ground is connected to the planet. And what are you doing to make sure that your own footprint and your own intention – is not mucking it up. <laughs> so you said you've you don't you don't do the grand scale, you do the one on one. Well how do you keep your activism flame fired? What do you do now? Telling stories to you folks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> no, no. It's uh it's a it's a place in my mind and uh and my heart, but it's in my mind. I, 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 I didn't let anger ever blow out that lamp of the mind, I, you know. And I've tried to, I, I've tried to be more patient now. And every time I'm more patient, the more I have that activist flame. Because if I'm patient, I'm going to give someone else a sense that we're in communication. We're not. I'm not losing my temper with you anymore I probably did a lot when I was younger Mm -hmm. (laughs) as an activist (laughs) does that that ring a bell (laughs) so here's our last last question for you you talked about growing up on a farm um, learning about civil rights really getting involved in the anti-war movement and seeing the earth they teach in as an opportunity to uh, as something to co-opt, essentially, yeah, but, and, and turn people into uh, more anti-war focus. But now you're you're a gardener, you're a cyclist, um, you wax eloquent on on environmentalism, and I would assume you identify as an environmentalist. You're participating in the climate march. So, in some ways, what I'm hearing in the story is 
yeah, you did the Earth Day teach it and you, you jumped on that opportunity. But in many ways, the environmental movement, which began in the 1970s, in many ways co-opted the anti-war movement. And co-opt isn't necessarily the it, right that, word. That was my word. No, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. No, no, I know. But it, it's, it's interesting how you evolved and changed. Now, it sounds like you're still very much aware of the 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 violence of war, the trauma that comes with war, human loss that comes with war, and that there's very much an anti-war spirit in you. I hear that a lot. But you've also became an environmentalist as a result of Earth Day. Yeah. What were those moments where you started to notice that, that, that shift or development into becoming an environmentalist? I think that's one thing that people might be surprised about is that Earth Day was not started by a bunch of folks who were environmentalists who were out there cleaning up rivers and streams and all this stuff. That wasn't your, your bag, but now you're responsible for creating something that creates probably the largest global awareness of environmentalism. So talk to us a little bit about what that, that development has been like for you as an environmentalist and, and how you see yourself as an environmentalist today. You know, the boiled frog story. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, I don't ever re- recall, and maybe for your listeners, I'd tell the boiled frog yeah, story. Yeah, tell, tell well, the story. boiled frog story. Is, it's really true that if you take a frog uh, and put in a pot of water and it's holding on to the edge of the pot, if you gradually turn up the heat just, just ever so slowly, the frog will actually boil, die. Now, I'm not into doing that, but it doesn't notice the change because it's incremental. You take that same frog and you pop it into boiling water. It gets out of that pan, bingo, and it's not really hurt. I mean, I guess some people have done this. But the, the point of this is, is that I don't, I don't think of myself as an environmentalist. I guess I'm the boiled frog. It just happened, you know. I mean, I recycle. I, uh, I, I don't know. I, it's it's hard, Darren, to say that I'm an environmentalist. Uh, I I think I could have said I was an anti-war activist, and that we started Earth Day, and we were, but it 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 developed a life of its own and a yeah. purpose of its own. So. I'm not trying to be cute, but I, I have never I have never put on a resume environmentalist. I mean, I, I don't see myself as that. I see myself as a one-on-one humanist. Mm-hmm. Like right now, my biggest thing in the day is to have a seven-year-old who I just do flashcards with them on the multiplication tables mm-hmm. and tell him to put his phone down because we're going to learn to do it in your head good tool to have want to make change someday no so it's uh, that's my environment now mm-hmm. is is the one-on-one and uh sure mm-hmm. so i'm there that's awesome andrew thank you so much for being with us today it's been just an absolute honor to meet you and, oh. and hear hear your story and i want to thank tina for co-hosting and making this possible and introducing us and and inviting Andrew to come and and join our community for the day here at at USIP. So thanks to the the both of you. Thank you. It's all about making connections, huh? Yeah, I guess so. You have been listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe 
who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. The Peace Frequency is produced by the Global Campus, USIP's online learning platform designed to teach and learn critical peace-building skills. You can learn more about the Global Campus at usipglobalcampus.org. Our theme music for today's episode is composed by B.O. Crew. You can check out their free music at ccmixter.org. The other music featured in today's episode is composed by Scott Holmes and Vortex. You can check out their music at freemusicarchive.org. Our graphic designer is Manuel Leon, and I've been your host, Darren Cambridge. Be sure to check the Peace Frequency website to access a recording of the show and other archived episodes of the podcast. The URL is usipglobalcampus.org slash peace dash frequency. Until next time, keep learning, supporting, and building peace. <laughs>